we have tried as much as possible to move away from building bespoke capabilities for a specific brand. What we realize is that even though the audience is different, the kind of content we produce is different, the experience generally that most of the brands want is roughly the same. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Sanjay Bhakta. Sanjay is the Chief Product and Technology Officer of Condé Nast, a 104-year-old media company which started as a magazine publisher and has increasingly become a digital organization. Today, a majority of the company's multiple billions of dollars in revenue is from digital sources. The company's iconic brands include The New Yorker, Wired, Architectural Digest, Vogue, Vanity Fair, and Bon Appetit. In his role, Sanjay is an architect of the company's emphasis on digital. He's the first to hold the combined product and technology role, one he's had for nearly four years, and he's the first to centralize his part of the company into a single team. I look forward to hearing more about his journey, the increased emphasis on product platforms, e-commerce, live streaming, video production and distribution and the like, and his thoughts about the role of artificial intelligence in a media company, among other topics we'll cover. Sanjay, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Yeah, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, indeed. Well, Sanjay, I, I wonder if you could take a quick moment and perhaps set a bit of context to those who are who joined us today to describe Condé Nast's business. Please do, do so if you would. Yeah, sure, sure. I think it's a great way to start because Condé Nast as a company, not everyone has heard about Condé Nast. I know a lot of people might have, but they definitely know our brands. A lot of, lot of the times people don't put our brands together with the Condé Nast name. They don't really know that Condé Nast owns all these great brands. Uh, I mean, we are, a, we are a very old company. We are over 100 years old. We started as a magazine publisher, but today we are a digital media company. Pretty much all of our content is available digitally. We are in the digital publishing space, digital video, events, you know, e-commerce, uh, subscription, so majority of our revenue now comes from digital. Print still is a significant portion of our revenue, but it is, uh, if you look at our overall pie, it is a much smaller portion than our digital revenues. And, you know, some of our brands, most people would definitely know Vogue and The New Yorker, um, Architectural Digest, Vanity Fair, you know, Bon Appetit. So we have over 30 brands, but, you know, uh, seven of our brands are global. Uh, and our largest brands that most people know. But there are lots of other smaller brands that we have that are very market specific. And we operate in 12 owned and operated markets around the world. And we have 30 odd licensee markets as well. Fascinating. And especially fascinating to, to understand more about how this 100-year-old company has become so digital, digitally centric. I'll look forward to understanding a bit more. And actually to that point, perhaps you could take a quick moment and describe your role as Chief Product and Technology Officer of the company. Sure. So um, at, at Condé Nast, I'm pretty much responsible for everything tech. As I said, we are now a completely digital company, which basically involves everything from product platforms to the apps that we build to our live streaming platform, all of our video production and, and distribution, um, anything that we need to do to support our events and our big businesses like our commerce business, our commercial ad business, um, as well as our subscription business, you know, pretty much everything is driven off of our digital platform. So I'm responsible for all of that. In addition, data is a big, big, big component for us now that drives all our products. So I am responsible for all of our data science, machine learning, you know, analytics and, and uh, data warehousing and 
functions as well. Um, in addition, I'm also responsible for our enterprise technology, which supports all of our back office systems, like our HR, finance, you know, sales, commercial systems, and so on and so forth, and cybersecurity as well. So it's pretty much a wide range of things. <laughs> Indeed. And, and I'd love to have you take a moment and describe the logic of combining product and technology. Certainly a lot of it makes sense simply in the description of the evolution of the business to become much more digital tech forward. But but maybe take a moment if you wouldn't mind to describe the, the that logic uh, and the advantages of having one person oversee both uh, both areas. Yeah, I think uh, from a from a product engineering standpoint, I think it was an inter- intentional decision that Condé Nast made when they hired me. I'm the first uh, CPTO at Condé Nast. In the past, they've had a CTO and chief digital officer and a product person. And I think there was a realization that you know, as the, as we move forward as a company and become more digital, it makes a lot of sense to have product and and engineering sort of really tightly coupled together. It also helps us do faster decision-making, you know, helps us to get products out into the market faster. So that was the idea of combining product and engineering. And then the enterprise technology piece really was sort of an additional add-on that was put on my plate because, you know, it just seemed to make sense that we have one technology leader for the company to lead everything. Not that there's a lot of synergy in what we do on the enterprise side with what we do on the customer facing side. When I started, I didn't really have data. We, we used to have a chief data officer, but then we made a pivot to move data more into the product space because we started to realize that, you know, a lot of our products needed to be very much data driven and having it into separate silos sort of didn't make a lot of sense for us. You know, we couldn't move as fast, you know, our, our roadmaps didn't align and so on. But bringing that all together, I think really made a lot of sense and we are starting to see the benefits of that. I, take a moment if you would, Sanjay, I'd be interested as you think about the evolution to becoming again, digital first, uh, where a majority of your revenue is from digital sources as well. The sanctity of that must mean that there are a number of priorities you and the team have been driving and continue to drive in that evolution. Can you talk a bit about some of their recent accomplishments as well as perhaps some of the areas you and the team are focused on going forward that continue to breathe life into that uh, that vision you have? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that you know we've recently uh, done is we've invested a lot into our e-commerce business. Uh, we never had a, a product information uh, management system before. You know, we we put that into place. Now we built some really cool uh, reusable components for our e-commerce shop that we can use across brands. Reusability is a big thing for us here because we have so many brands. We want to make sure we're not building anything bespoke that is specific to one brand. And whatever we build, we want to be able to quickly port that, whether it's a whether it's our paywall technology, whether it's our marketing technology that we have sitting behind these paywalls and our subscription products, or whether it's our commerce products, we want to be able to move that quickly across uh, all of our brands. And that has been a big focus for us in terms of how we architect our platform and how we build these reusable capabilities. Um, so that has been a big focus. You know, I think one of our recent successes has also been a reusable live streaming platform. We built that originally for the Met Gala a year and a half or so ago. And since then, we've used it for multiple tentpole events, you know, and we never did live streaming before uh, I got here. Um, so that was the it was the first time that we did live streaming here, which was the Met Gala we had right after the pandemic. 
Um, and since then, we've live streamed so many, so many events. And more recently, you know, we've had a lot of focus on on data science and our and our machine learning and our AI capabilities. We've had a data science team here for actually quite a long time, about over four years. So, you know, a lot of people have started talking about AI now since Chat GPT was announced eight months ago or ten months ago. But you know, data science has been a part of our DNA for a, quite a, quite a while, and we've invested quite heavily in it. And we have several hundred uh, machine learning models that are in production right now. But you know, over the course of the past several months, we have re really invested in AI-driven image search. That's that we are launching shortly on our Vogue Runway product, where you can easily go and do natural language search across our database of millions of images you can even upload an image and ask for matching images and it, and it gives you the answers we're doing something similar with our cooking product now where we make it we want to make it really easy for you to go find the right recipe based on the ingredients you have or get a recipe and then be able to change it you know so you know you want to swap certain ingredients in and out a lot of that is you know very much ai driven we are now starting to also think about how we use our first-party data to provide better experience to our users, whether it's personalized newsletters, personalized recommendations, and a very personalized experience as you come to our site, you know, based on, you know, a lot of it is based on propensity modeling as well. You know, we are, again, that's also based on the models that we have built to determine whether a customer is, is highly likely to subscribe or not. And based on that, we can then dynamically adjust their experience accordingly to to support more of our commercial business versus drive, you know, potential conversion and subscription. You mentioned at the outset, San, outset Sanjay, the, the number of iconic brands that you you have within the portfolio from uh, Wired, New Yorker, Architectural Digest, Vogue, um, just to name a few. And the the audience for each uh, is quite different. And the content naturally is quite quite different as well. And I'm wondering from a from a product perspective and a technology perspective, um, how much overlap is there versus what you, um, you know, attributes or aspects which are understandably unique brand by brand as well? Yeah, no, as I was alluding to earlier, we have tried as much as possible to move away from building bespoke capabilities for a specific brand. What we realize is that even though, the, like you said, the audience is different, the kind of content we produce is different, the experience generally that most of the brands want is 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 roughly the same. You know, the, we have built components like if you build a life story component, that life story component could be used by, you know, uh, Vogue for the Met Gala. It could be used by Vanity Fair for the Oscar party or some other event. It could be used by GQ for Men of the Year. Um, so many of these components that we build, whether it's the commerce components or storytelling components, we're realizing that you know most of the brands can use them with minor modification in terms of aesthetics or look and feel that go better with the with, you know that is more brand has much brand more brand affinity to the brand that that is using that particular component but uh, fundamentally it, you know the technology stays the same so one of the early things we did you know about two and a half years ago was uh, when i started here you know we had dozens and dozens of product platforms globally and um, so many different components, so many different technologies. One of the first projects we embarked on was bringing every brand, every market onto a single global product platform. So now we have you know, over 57 brand sites running on the exact same platform, uh, which has then allowed us to, to get to this point where when we build a certain capability, that capability is now immediately available 
to every other brand that we have. You know, New Yorker may be the first one to ask for something and we build it for them, but we build it in a way that now the other brands can start using that same capability. Um, occasionally, very rarely, we do have requests for something bespoke that if it makes sense, we do do that. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite rare. So we have really gotten to a point where we, we are very, very focused on reusable capabilities. And how does your team reflect that? You mentioned, I mean, again, the diversity of brands, but the 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 desire to do much more commonly where possible. You also have the differences in geography and a, a broad footprint from that perspective. Talk a bit about how your team is organized, please. Yeah, so we, we are now a single global tech team, which wasn't the case when I started. Every market had their own engineering and product team. They had their own platform. Once we moved to a common platform, we consolidated all of the teams. So everyone is, you know, all of the teams are, you know, are now working together as one single team. We have one product team, one design team, one engineering team, and so on globally. Um, we, on the product side, you know, we used to have a lot of product managers who were focused on brands and, you know, some, some were focused on the platform capabilities. But as we have moved more towards reusable capabilities, these product teams have become smaller. You know, we still have some product management capabilities for some key brands, but most of the, the our focus is now on, the, on the, the platform and capabilities side. So all of our product management and design functions are very focused on the capabilities. We still have some capability within the brands to just for, especially the big brands to focus on things that may be bespoke or specific requirements. But most times, as, as, we, as I said earlier, if New Yorker provides us with a requirement for a capability, the first thing we look at and say, is this something that can be reused across brands? And what is the ROI on this? You know, if we really build this, is it just going to be for the New Yorker and is it really worth it? And if we get to a point where we say, oh, no, this is something that, you know, four other brands could potentially use, it's, it's much more of a no brainer for us to work on that rather than something that is very bespoke. So our teams are also organized the same way. Like I said, most of them are focused on capabilities. Very small portion is focused on specific brands. And I know you've made a big investment in India as well, a, a lab of sorts. Talk a bit about uh, how you've staffed that up and the kinds of uh, things they're involved in there. Yeah, so the Condense Technology Lab is something that that we are very proud of. Um, again, when I started, we didn't really have any presence in India. We wanted to really grow our technology team and, and double the size of the number of uh, people we had between product design and engineering and even on the enterprise tech side. And, you know, we had limited budget and it wasn't that our budget was growing, you know, twice as much. Um, so, so one of the things we did was we looked at where could we go to find the best tech talent and be a team and augment the teams that we already had in New York and London, as well as in all of our markets. So um, we picked Bangalore as our first choice for, for product because that's where uh, uh, we, we, we knew we were going to find the best product and engineering talent. There are a lot of product engineering companies out there in Bangalore. And we started uh, in July of uh, 2020, um, I, I believe. And uh, that was when we hired our very first employee. And and we since then we've grown our presence in India to over 500 uh, product engineering design and enterprise tech resources. We also have a presence in Chennai where we had a 
small data group before, but now we have, you know, about 200 odd resources in Chennai in India who are mostly focused on the data side and most of the product engineering is, is based out of Bangalore. We also have built a security operations center, a network operations center and a 24 by seven support center in Chennai as well, which we never had before. So we were able to build all these functions uh, which we didn't have within Condé Nast, and also, you know, grow the size of our capabilities, you know, in a very cost-effective way. But we are now doing twice as much for the business, you know, with a much smaller budget than we had, you know, three years ago. Very interesting. Uh, interesting developments in there, developments there, to say the least. Um, I wanted to ask you, Sanjay, reviewing your career, uh, there was a point where it seemed as though you were climbing a traditional IT ladder. Uh, now you've pivoted uh, into you know broader engineering and platform product uh, responsibilities. I, I wonder how what sorts of uh, aspects of your career led to or experiences that you had led to you uh, broadening out your responsibilities like the ones you currently have. Yeah, I mean, I think it was over time. I never really worked in traditional enterprise technology. You know, I was I was pretty much through my whole career. I was mostly focused on customer facing products and and services. Uh, but I was very much on the engineering side. You know, I never really had much exposure to product management other than working with with product management. I guess over the years, just working with a lot of really excellent product managers, I learned a lot of the skills. You know, just just by working with people. Um, and I think over the course of my last couple of jobs, you know, I started moving more into the product management space, started off with uh, more internally facing products rather than externally facing products, you know, things, tools and, and products that we used internally to build what we were then giving to the customer. Uh, and that was a good sort of way to, to build my skills before I got into really customer facing stuff. It's a, it's a lot of the skills are, portable, but then there are a lot of things when you get into the customer facing side that that are, you know, things that are very new that I had to learn over a, over a period of time. Um, enterprise technology is something that I've ne I have not really had direct responsibility for, honestly, throughout my career. This is the first place where I actually have enterprise tech as well. I've, I've mostly been on the product engineering side, but that was something that, you know, came to me a little bit naturally coming from an engineering background. Uh, product was something I really had to watch and learn uh, from people I worked with, and I'm still learning. I mean, my I'm fortunate to have some really amazing product and design and engineering people, you know, working with me. And you know, every day is a learning experience, especially on the product and design side. I learn something new every day. Um, That's fantastic. I, I wanted to ask you, um, generative AI is certainly. Uh, being written about, thought about, uh, implemented, used in so many corners of, of of business, but also in our personal lives as well. And there's been much uh, made about its ability to generate content, both uh, words and images, uh, among other other ways in which it's being leveraged. And I wonder, you know, given the industry that you're in, uh, one that is so focused on um, world class writing and, uh, and and images and, and arts and so forth. Um, what what you see is the potential for generative AI in an environment like yours, and also, frankly, how you see the uh, human AI partnership working at its best. Yeah, for us, you know, when uh, when ChatGPT was initially announced, you know, there was a lot of concern because you know a lot of the 
uh, all of the training that these models, whether it's ChatGPT or whether it is uh, Google's product or Amazon, a lot of them were trained on, you know, freely available content on the internet, which, which including our content, you know, which we, which we take pride in and we put a lot of effort and energy into producing this content. So obviously we were not happy about the fact that our content was used to train these models without explicit uh, authorization or permission from, from us. Um, but, you know, since then, we over the course of the last few months, we've started to work with OpenAI and with Google to see. I mean, they're looking to see as well as to the what the future looks like and how they appropriately compensate, you know, content producers like ourselves um, for using our content to train their models. Because the fact is that, you know, you may have read about it, but there's this concept of model collapse. If you put aside the... the uh, the ethical or business, you know, financial uh, issues around who gets paid and who gets attribution, even technically, you know, if they, if content producers like ourselves who produce original content, stop producing content or stop giving access to these engines to, to train on our content over a period of time, you get into this situation called model collapse. Um, you know, somebody gave me a good example of, uh, you know, taking a photograph and then photocopying it and then taking a photocopy of the photocopy. And you do that a few times. And then you at the end, the end result is you have an image that is unrecognizable. And the same thing is going to happen to these models if they if original content, there's not enough original content out there for them to train. Because as you said, so many people are now producing content using chat GPT and other LLMs so that when the next version comes out, they're basically training that model on a lot of content that was generated by the previous model. And, and you do that enough number of times, and then you basically end up with, with garbage at the end. So they, for them as well, there is, there is a lot of value in publishers like us who produce original content. You know, they do need that. So it's a symbiotic relationship, I think. Um, so we are really working with, uh, with with you know OpenAI and Google and others to really figure out what that model looks like as we move forward. But as a company, we we made a public statement that none of our content is going to be generated uh, using LLMs. It's all going to be uh, using our creative horsepower that we have. We have amazing editors and editorial staff that write great stories, and we want to continue to do that. But but your your question about how do, how is it going to work in the future? I think there is a role for AI to play certainly in the publishing industry, especially, you know, uh, things like idea generation, perhaps, you know, uh, copy editing. I don't know. I mean, there are things that you could potentially do in the future with, with, with LLMs that help you optimize your workflows and, and help you produce content faster, produce more content, produce better content, perhaps. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we don't have our doors quite shut on it. We are actively looking to see where we can internally use it to help optimize how we work as a company. And, you know, and you know, as, as well as I do, I think five years from now, every industry is going to be appended by AI, whether it's medicine, finance, you know, publishing, you name it, even, even tech industry, you know, a lot of these engines are going to start writing meaningful code. I mean, they're already doing it, but I think it's only going to get better and better as time goes by. So, we just have to figure out how how we sort of work with it and how we assimilate that into what we do and and uh, hopefully help us to do our, our jobs better than we are doing now. 
Sanjay, uh, that's a very meaningful trend, and we've talked about a few of them and their their application in an organization like yours. Any others you would highlight as of particular interest to you as you look to the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we already talked about AI, so I'm really excited to see where this whole uh, trend goes. I'm also scared about some of the downsides of AI, to be honest with you, but hopefully the, the positives will far outweigh uh, the, the negatives that come out of it. But, uh, you know, I know as after... Chat GPT, people have suddenly stopped talking about the metaverse. I know like a year and a half ago, that was like a big thing. Um, I don't think it is it is dead. I think it is, you know, uh, it is going to be the future, but um, uh, it remains to be seen how long it takes us to get there. I think it's still very early days. You know, I think the barrier to entry has to be very small. You, you remember back in the day when the internet first uh, came out, you know, it was a dial-up modem, you know, very few people had computers, you know, you actually had to pay a quite a hefty fee every month for a limited amount of data to get online. And now today, if you look at, you know, pretty much every person with a smartphone is, is connected to the internet and has access to it. And it's so easy, the barrier to entry is practically non-existent. Um, and I think we have to get to that point with the metaverse as well. And I think it will happen. Um, you know, I, I don't know how long it's going to take. Hopefully, the what Apple is coming out with their their version of the VR uh, uh, glasses is going is going to change it, take it to a different level, like they did with the iPhone. Um, I'm hoping that what happened with the iPhone to the internet, this similar thing will happen, and you know, maybe five seven years from now, you know, that will be the next big thing after the internet. But uh, I think I think there's some exciting opportunities there. Uh, what it can do to to our lives and mankind in general, uh, whether it's medicine, whether it's any other industry, training and things like that. But um, so we'll have to wait and see. I think I'm 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 excited to see what comes next there as well. I also wanted to ask Sanjay, as somebody who has uh, um, such a consequential role in a in, in a an important company. As you reflect on your journey, you talked a bit about some of the the experiences that that uh, gained you access to to product centric responsibilities. But more generally speaking, were there other difference makers that you would highlight as you reflect on your journey to become eventually chief product and technology officer at a company like Condé Nast? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's an interesting question because every time I have a mentoring session with some you know, junior employees that I work with, they always ask me that question, and I'm always stumped because I don't think there is a there is a there's a secret recipe or something like that 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 helped me. But um, I I really think that I was fortunate. You know, a lot of it a lot of it is you know being in the right place at the right time. Um, I think I was fortunate to have the right opportunities, and and more importantly, I think I had some really great mentors. And managers throughout my career who who I learned a lot from, um, and I think that has certainly helped shape my career to a large extent. Uh, and from, and personally, you know, I I I always believe that you know we need to give our hundred and ten percent, and I've always sort of tried to do that to the best of my ability. And then the rest, you know, is uh, is you know. Uh, chance or fate or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you know, you do your part. You do the best you can. You learn as much as you can every every single day, and I think the rest of it is really more of an outcome. I think it's the the process that I think we can really control and and uh, focus on. Yeah, so operate well in the sandbox you have now, and and the sandbox make it bigger. <laughs> uh, great advice all the way around, uh, Sanjay, and thank you 
so much generally for, for this great conversation, reflections on the remarkable work you and your team are doing, uh, the progress the company is making towards becoming digital first. Uh, it, it's been really exciting to hear more about your journey. Thank you so much for sharing a bit about it today. No, thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's always fun to do this. <laughs>